0: Chapter 5, Section 5-10 to 10 of The World Set Free. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The World Set Free by H.G. Wells chapter five section five and yet it may be i am unjust to bismarck said corinan following his own thoughts you see men belong to their own age we stand upon a common stock of thought and we fancy we stand upon the ground i met a pleasant man the other day a maori whose great-grandfather was a cannibal it chanced he had a daguerreotype of the old sinner and the two were marvelously alike one felt a little juggling with time and either might have been the other people are cruel and stupid in a stupid age who might be gentle and splendid in a gracious one the world also has its moods think of the mental food of bismarck's childhood the humiliations of Napoleon's victories, the crowded, crowning victory of the Battle of the Nations. Everybody in those days, wise or foolish, believed that the division of the world under a multitude of governments was inevitable, and that it was going on for thousands of years more. It was inevitable until it was impossible any one who had denied that inevitability publicly would have been counted oh a silly fellow old bismarck was only just a little forcible on the lines of the accepted ideas that is all he thought that since there had to be a national government he would make one that was strong at home and invincible abroad because he had fed with a kind of rough appetite upon what we can see now were very stupid ideas. That does not make him a stupid man. We've had advantages, we've had unity and collectivism blasted into our brains. Where should we be now but for the grace of science? I should have been an embittered, spiteful, downtrodden member of the Russian intelligentsia a conspirator a prisoner or an assassin you my dear would have been breaking dingy windows as a suffragette never said edith stoutly for a time the talk broke into humorous personalities and the young people jibed at each other across the smiling old administrator and then presently one of the young scientific men gave things a new turn He spoke like one who was full to the brim. You know, sir, I've a fancy. It is hard to prove such things, that civilization was very near disaster when the atomic bombs came banging into it, that if there had been no Holston and no induced radioactivity, the world would have smashed much as it did. Only, instead of its being a smash that opened a way to better things, it might have been a smash without a recovery. It is part of my business to understand economics, and from that point of view the century before Holston was just a hundred years' crescendo of waste. Only the extreme individualism of that period Only its utter want of any collective understanding or purpose can explain that waste. Mankind used up material, insanely. They had got through three-quarters of all the coal in the planet. They had used up most of the oil. They had swept away their forests, and they were running short of tin and copper. Their wheat areas were getting weary and populous and many of the big towns had so lowered the water level of their available hills that they suffered a drought every summer. The whole system was rushing towards bankruptcy and they were spending every year vaster and vaster amounts of power and energy upon military preparations and continually expanding the debt of industry to capital. The system was already staggering when Holsten began his researches. So far as the world in general went, there was no sense of danger and no desire for inquiry. They had no belief that science could save them, nor any idea that there was a need to be saved. They could not, they would not, see the gulf beneath their feet it was pure good luck for mankind at large that any research at all was in progress and as i say sir if that line of escape hadn't opened before now there might have been a crash revolution panic social disintegration famine and it is conceivable complete disorder the rails might have rusted on the disused railways by now The telephone poles have rotted and fallen. The big liners dropped into sheet iron in the ports. The burnt, deserted cities become the ruinous hiding places of gangs of robbers. We might have been brigands in a shattered and attenuated world. Ah, you may smile, but that had happened before in human history. The world is still studded with the ruins of broken-down civilizations. barbaric bands made their fastness upon the Acropolis and the tomb of Hadrian became a fortress that warred across the ruins of Rome against the Colosseum. Had all that possibility of reaction ended so certainly in nineteen forty, is it all so very far away even now? It seems far enough away now, said Edith Hayden. But forty years ago? No, said Karenin, with his eyes upon the mountains. I think you underrate the available intelligence in those early decades of the twentieth century. Officially, I know, politically, that intelligence didn't tell, but it was there, and I questioned your hypotheses. I doubt if that discovery could have been delayed. There is a kind of inevitable logic now in the progress of research. For a hundred years and more thought and science have been going their own way regardless of the common events of life. You see, they have got loose. If there had been no Holstein, there would have been some similar man. If atomic energy had not come in one year, it would have come in another. In decadent Rome, the march of science had scarcely begun. Nineveh, Babylon, Athens, Syracuse, Alexandria. These were the first rough experiments in association that made a security, a breathing space in which inquiry was born. Man had to experiment before he found out the way to begin. But already 200 years ago he had fairly begun the politics and dignities and wars of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries were only the last phoenix blaze of the former civilization flaring up about the beginnings of the new which we serve man lives in the dawn forever said karenin life is beginning and nothing else but beginning it begins everlastingly Each step seems vaster than the last, and does but gather us together for the nest. This modern state of ours, which would have been a utopian marvel a hundred years ago, is already the commonplace of life. But as I sit here and dream of the possibilities in the mind of man that now gather to a head beneath the shelter of its peace, These great mountains here seem but little things. Section 6 About eleven, Kiranen had his midday meal, and afterwards he slept among his artificial furs and pillows for two hours. Then he awoke and some tea was brought to him, and he attended to a small difficulty in connection with the Moravian schools in the Labrador country and in Greenland that Gardner knew would interest him. He remained alone for a little while after that, and then the two women came to him again. Afterwards, Edwards and Con joined the group, and the talk fell upon love and the place of women in the Renaissance world. The cloud-banks of India lay under a quivering haze, and the blaze of the sun fell full upon the eastward precipice. Ever and again as they talked some vast splinter of rock would crack and come away from these, or a wild rush of snow and ice and stone pour down in thunder, hang like a wet thread into the gulfs below, and cease. Section seven. For a time Karenin said very little and Con the popular poet, talked of passionate love. He said that passionate personal love had been the abiding desire of humanity since ever humanity had begun, and now only was it becoming a possible experience. It had been a dream that generation after generation had pursued that always men had lost on the verge of attainment. To most of those who had sought it obstinately it had brought tragedy. Now, lifted above sordid distresses, men and women might hope for realized and triumphant love. This age was the dawn of love. Karenin remained downcast and thoughtful while Khan said these things. Against that continued silence, Kahn's voice presently seemed to beat and fail. He had begun by addressing Karenin, but presently he was including Edith Hayden and Rachel Borkin in his appeal. Rachel listened silently. Edith watched Karenin and very deliberately avoided Kahn's eyes. I know, said Karenin at last, that many people are saying this sort of thing. I know that there is a vast release of love-making in the world. This great wave of decoration and elaboration that has gone about the world, this efflorescence, has of course laid hold of that. I know that when you say that the world is set free, you interpret that to mean that the world is set free for love-making. Down there, under the clouds, the lovers foregather. I know your songs, Con, your half-mystical songs, in which you represent this old hard world dissolving into a luminous haze of love, sexual love. I don't think you are right or true in that. You are a young, imaginative man, and you see life ardently with the eyes of youth, But the power that has brought man into these high places under this blue-veiled blackness of the sky, and which beckons us on towards the immense and awful future of our race, is riper and deeper and greater than any such emotions. All through my life it has been a necessary part of my work. I have had to think of this release of sexual love and the riddles that perfect freedom and almost limitless power will put to the soul of our race. I can see now, all over the world, a beautiful ecstasy of waste. Let us sing and rejoice and be lovely and wonderful. The orgy is only beginning, Con. It was inevitable, but it is not the end of mankind think what we are it is but a yesterday in the endlessness of time that life was a dreaming thing dreaming so deeply that it forgot itself as it dreamt its lives its individual instincts its moments were born and wondered and played and desired and hungered and grew weary and died incalculable successions of vision visions of sunlit jungle river wilderness wild forests eager desire beating hearts soaring wings and creeping terror flamed hotly and then were as though they had never been life was an uneasiness across which lights played and vanished and then we came man came and opened eyes that were a question, and hands that were a demand, and began a mind and memory that dies not when men die, but lives and increases forever, an overmind, a dominating will, a question and an aspiration that reaches to the stars. Hunger and fear, and this that you make so much of, this sex. "'are but the elementals of life out of which we have arisen. "'All these elementals, I grant you, have to be provided for, "'dealt with, satisfied, but all these things have to be left behind. "'But love,' said Kahn, "'I speak of sexual love and the love of intimate persons.' "'And that is what you mean, Kahn?' Karenin shook his head. You cannot stay at the roots and climb the tree, he said. No, he said after a pause, this sexual excitement, this love story, is just a part of growing up and we grow out of it. So far literature and art and sentiment and all our emotional forms have been almost altogether adolescent. Plays and stories, delights and hopes, they have all turned on that marvellous discovery of the love interest. But life lengthens out now, and the mind of adult humanity detaches itself. Poets who used to die at 30 live now to 85. You too, Khan. There are endless years yet for you, and all full of learning. We carry an excessive burden of sex and sexual tradition still, and we have to free ourselves from it. We do free ourselves from it, We have learnt in a thousand different ways to hold back death. And this sex, which in the old barbaric days was just sufficient to balance our dying, is now like a hammer that has lost its anvil. It plunges through human life. You poets, you young people, want to turn it to delight. Turn it to delight. That may be one way out. In a little while, if you have any brains worth thinking about, You will be satisfied, and then you will come up here to the greater things. The old religions and their new offsets want still, I see, to suppress all these things. Let them suppress, if they can suppress, in their own people. Either road will bring you here at last to the eternal search for knowledge and the great adventure of power. But incidentally, said Rachel Borkin, incidentally you have half of humanity you have womankind very much specialized for for this love and reproduction that is so much less needed than it was both sexes are specialized for love and reproduction said karenin but the women carry the heavier burden not in their imaginations said edwards and surely said kahn when you speak of love as a phase isn't it a necessary phase quite apart from reproduction the love of the sexes is necessary isn't it love sexual love which has released the imagination without that stir without that impulse to go out from ourselves to be reckless of ourselves and wonderful would our lives be anything more than the contentment of the stalled ox the key that opens the door said karenin "'is not the goal of the journey.' "'But women!' cried Rachel. "'Here we are. What is our future, as women? "'Is it only that we have unlocked the doors of the imagination for you men? "'Let us speak of this question now. "'It is a thing constantly in my thoughts, Karenin. "'What do you think of us, you who must have thought so much of these perplexities?' Karenin seemed to weigh his words. He spoke very deliberately. I do not care a rap about your future, as women. I do not care a rap about the future of men, as males. I want to destroy these peculiar futures. I care for your future as intelligences, as parts of and contribution to the universal mind of the race. Humanity is not only naturally over-specialized in these matters, but all its institutions, its customs, everything, exaggerate, intensify this difference. I want to unspecialize women. No new idea. Plato wanted exactly that. I do not want to go on as we go now, emphasizing this natural difference. I do not deny it, but I want to reduce it "'and overcome it.' "'And we remain women?' said Rachel Borkin. "'Need you remain thinking of yourself as women?' "'It is forced upon us,' said Edith Hayden. "'I do not think a woman becomes less of a woman "'because she dresses and works like a man,' said Edwards. "'You women here, I mean you scientific women, "'wear white clothing like the men.' "'twist up your hair in the simplest fashion. "'Go about your work as though there was only one sex in the world. "'You are just as much women, even if you are not so feminine, "'as the fine ladies down below there in the plains "'who dress for excitement and display, "'whose only thoughts are of lovers, "'who exaggerate every difference. "'Indeed we love you more.' "'But we go about our work,' said Edith Hayden so does it matter asked rachel if you go about your work and if the men go about their work then for heaven's sake, be as much woman as you wish said karenin when i ask you to unspecialized i am thinking not of the abolition of sex but the abolition of the irksome restricting obstructive obsession with sex It may be true that sex made society, that the first society was the sex-cemented family, the first state of confederacy of blood relations, the first law's sexual taboos. Until a few years ago, morality meant proper sexual behavior. Up to within a few years of us, the chief interest and motive of an ordinary man was to keep and rule a woman and her children, and the chief concern of a woman was to get a man to do that. That was the drama, that was life, and the jealousy of these demands was the master motive in the world. You said, Con, a little while ago, that sexual love was the key that let one out from the solitude of self. "'but I tell you that so far it has only done so "'in order to lock us all up again in a solitude of two. "'All that may have been necessary, "'but it is necessary no longer. "'All that has changed and changes still very swiftly, "'your future, Rachel, as women, "'is a diminishing future.' "'Karenin?' asked Rachel. "'Do you mean that women are to become men?' Men and women have to become human beings. You would abolish women? But, Karenin, listen. There is more than sex in this. Apart from sex, we are different from you. We take up life differently. Forget we are females, Karenin, and still we are a different sort of human being with a different use. In some things, we are amazingly secondary. Here I am in this place because of my trick of management, and Edith is here because of her patient, subtle hands. That does not alter the fact that nearly the whole body of science is man-made. That does not alter the fact that men do so predominantly make history. That you could nearly write a complete history of the world without mentioning a woman's name and on the other hand we have a gift of devotion of inspiration a distinctive power for truly loving beautiful things a care for life and a peculiar keen close eye for behaviour you know men are blind beside us in these last matters you know they are restless and fitful we have a steadfastness we may never draw the broad outlines nor discover the new paths but in the future isn't there a confirming and sustaining and supplying role for us, as important, perhaps, as yours? Equally important, we hold the world up, Karenin, though you may have raised it. You know very well, Rachel, that I believe as you believe. I am not thinking of the abolition of women, but I do want to abolish the heroine, the sexual heroine, I want to abolish the woman whose support is jealousy and whose gift possession. I want to abolish the woman who can be won as a prize or locked up as a delicious treasure. And away down there the heroine flares like a divinity. In America, said Edwards, men are fighting duels over the praises of women and holding tournaments before queens of beauty. I saw a beautiful girl in Lahore, said Khan. She sat under a golden canopy like a goddess, and three fine men, armed and dressed like the ancient paintings, sat on steps below her to show their devotion, and they wanted only her permission to fight for her. "'That is the men's doing,' said Edith Hayden. "'I said,' cried Edwards that man's imagination was more specialized for sex than the whole being of woman what woman would do a thing like that women do but submit to it or take advantage of it there is no evil between men and women that is not a common evil said karenin it is you poets with your love songs which turn the sweet fellowship of comrades into this woman-centered excitement but there is something in women in many women which responds to these provocations they succumb to a peculiarly self-cultivating egotism they become the subjects of their own artistry they develop and elaborate themselves as scarcely any man would ever do They look for golden canopies and even when they seem to react against that they may do it still. I have been reading in the old papers of the movements to emancipate women that were going on before the discovery of atomic force. These things which began with a desire to escape from the limitations and servitude of sex ended in an inflamed assertion of sex and women more heroines than ever. Helen of Holloway was at last as big a nuisance in her way as Helen of Troy, and so long as you think of yourselves as women, he held out a finger at Rachel and smiled gently, instead of thinking of yourselves as intelligent beings, you will be in danger of Hellenism. To think of yourselves as women is to think of yourselves in relation to men. You can't escape that consequence. You have to learn to think of yourselves for our sakes and for your own sakes. In relation to the sun and stars, you have to cease to be our adventure, Rachel, and come with us upon our adventures. He waved his hand towards the dark sky above the Mountain Crests. Section eight. These questions are the next questions to which research will bring us answers, said Karenin. While we sit here and talk idly and inexactly of what is needed and what may be, there are hundreds of keen-witted men and women who are working these things out dispassionately and certainly for the love of knowledge the next sciences to yield great harvests now will be psychology and neural physiology. These perplexities of the situation between man and woman and the trouble with the obstinacy of egotism, these are temporary troubles, the issue of our own times. Suddenly all these differences that seem so fixed will dissolve all these incompatibles will run together and we shall go on to mould our bodies and our bodily feelings and personal reactions as boldly as we begin now to carve mountains and set the seas in their places and change the currents of the wind it is the next wave said fowler who had come out upon the terrace and seated himself silently behind karenin's chair OF COURSE, IN THE OLD DAYS, SAID EDWARDS, MEN WERE TIED TO THEIR CITY OR THEIR COUNTRY, TIED TO THE HOMES THEY OWNED OR THE WORK THEY DID. I DO NOT SEE, SAID Karenin, THAT THERE IS ANY FINAL LIMIT TO MAN'S POWER OF SELF-MODIFICATION. THERE IS NONE, SAID FOWLER, WALKING FORWARD AND SITTING DOWN UPON THE parapet IN FRONT OF CARININ SO THAT HE COULD SEE HIS FACE. "'There is no absolute limit to either knowledge or power. "'I hope you do not tire yourself talking.' "'I am interested,' said Karenin. "'I suppose in a little while men will cease to be tired. "'I suppose in a little time you will give us something "'that will hurry away the fatigued products "'and restore our jaded tissues almost at once. "'This old machine may be made to run "'without slacking or cessation.' That is possible, Karenin, but there is much to learn. And all the hours we give to digestion and half-living, don't you think there will be some way of saving these? Fowler nodded assent. And then sleep again, when men with his blazing lights made an end to night in his towns and houses. It is only a hundred years or so ago that that was done. Then it followed he would presently resent his eight hours of uselessness. Shan't we presently take a tabloid or lie in some field of force that will enable us to do with an hour or so of slumber and rise refreshed again? Frobisher and Amir Ali have done work in that direction. And then the inconveniences of age and those diseases of the system that comes with years. Steadily you drive them back, and you lengthen and lengthen the years that stretch between the passionate tumults of youth and the contractions of senility. Man who used to weaken and die as his teeth decayed now looks forward to a continually lengthening, continually fuller term of years. And all those parts of him that once gathered evil against him, the vestigial, structures, and odd, treacherous corners of his body you know better and better how to deal with. You carve his body about and leave it remodelled and unscarred. The psychologists are learning how to mould minds, to reduce and remove bad complexes of thought and motive, to relieve pressures and broaden ideas, so that we are becoming more and more capable of transmitting what we have learnt and preserving it for the race. The race, the racial wisdom, science, gather power continually to subdue the individual man to its own end. Is that not so? Fowler said that it was, and for a time he was telling Karenin of new work that was in progress in India and Russia. And how is it with heredity? asked Karenin. Fowler told them of the mass of inquiry accumulated and arranged by the genius of Techen, who was beginning to define clearly the laws of inheritance and how the sex of children and the complexions and many of the parental qualities could be determined. He can actually do? It is still, so to speak, a mere laboratory triumph, said Fowler, but tomorrow it will be practicable. You see, cried Karenin, turning a laughing face to Rachel and Edith, while we have been theorizing about men and women, here is science getting the power for us to end that old dispute forever. If woman is too much for us, we'll reduce her to a minority. And if we do not like any type of men and women, we'll have no more of it. These old bodies, these old animal limitations, all this earthly inheritance of gross inevitabilities falls from the spirit of man like the shriveled cocoon from an imago. And for my own part, when I hear of these things, I feel like that. Like a wet, crawling new moth that still fears to spread its wings. Because where do these things take us? ''Beyond humanity,'' said Khan. ''No,'' said Karenin. ''We can still keep our feet upon the earth that made us, but the air no longer imprisons us. This round planet is no longer chained to us like the ball of a galley slave.'' In a little while, men who will know how to bear the strange gravitations, the altered pressures, The attenuated, unfamiliar gases and all the fearful strangenesses of space will be venturing out from this earth. This ball will be no longer enough for us. Our spirits will reach out. Cannot you see how that little argosy will go glittering up into the sky, twinkling and glittering smaller and smaller until the blue swallows it up? they may succeed out there they may perish but other men will follow them it is as if a great window opened said corinnan section nine as the evening drew on corinnan and those who were about him went up upon the roof of the buildings so that they might the better watch the sunset and the flushing of the mountains and the coming of the afterglow They were joined by two of the surgeons from the laboratories below and presently by a nurse who brought Corinne refreshment in a thin glass cup. It was a cloudless, windless evening under the deep blue sky and far away to the north glittered two biplanes on the way to the observatories on Everest, two hundred miles distant over the precipices to the east the little group of people watched them pass over the mountains and vanish into the blue and then for a time they talked of the work that the observatory was doing from that they passed to the whole process of research about the world and so karenin's thoughts returned again to the mind of the world and the great future that was opening upon man's imagination He asked the surgeons many questions upon the detailed possibilities of their science, and he was keenly interested and excited by the things they told him. And as they talked, the sun touched the mountains and became very swiftly a blazing and indented hemisphere of liquid flame and sank. Karenin looked blinking at the last quivering rim of incandescence, and shaded his eyes and became silent. Presently he gave a little start. "'What?' asked Rachel Borkin. "'I had forgotten,' he said. "'What had you forgotten?' "'I had forgotten about the operation tomorrow. I have been so interested as man today that I have nearly forgotten Marcus Karenin.' "'Marcus Karenin must go under your knife tomorrow, Fowler.' and very probably Marcus Karenin will die. He raised his slightly shrivelled hand. It does not matter, Fowler. It scarcely matters even to me. For indeed is it Karenin who has been sitting here and talking? Is it not rather a common mind, Fowler, that has played about between us? You and I and all of us have added thought to thought but the thread is neither you nor me. What is true we all have. When the individual has altogether brought himself to the test and winnowing of expression, then the individual is done. I feel as though I had already been emptied out of that little vessel, that Marcus Karenin, which in my youth held me so tightly and completely, your beauty dear edith and your broad brow dear rachel and you fowler with your firm and skilful hands are now almost as much to me as this hand that beats the arm of my chair and as little me and the spirit that desires to know the spirit that resolves to do that spirit that lives and has talked in us to-day lived in athens lived in florence lives on i know forever and you old son with your sword of flame searing these poor eyes of marcus for the last time of all beware of me you think i die and indeed i am only taking off one more coat to get at you i have threatened you for ten thousand years and soon i warn you i shall be coming when i am altogether stripped and my disguise is thrown away very soon now, old son, I shall launch myself at you, and I shall reach you, and I shall put my foot on your spotted face and tug you about by your fiery locks. One step I shall take to the moon, and then I shall leap at you. I have talked to you before, old son. I have talked to you a million times, and now I am beginning to remember. Yes, long ago, long ago, before I had stripped off a few thousand generations, dust now and forgotten. I was a hairy savage and I pointed my hand at you and clearly I remember it. I saw you in a net. Have you forgotten that, old son? Old son, I gather myself together out of the pools of the individual that have held me dispersed so long. I gather my billion thoughts into science and my million wills into a common purpose. Well, may you slink down behind the mountains from me. Well, may you cower. Section 10 Karenin desired that he might dream alone for a little while before he returned to the cell in which he was to sleep. He was given relief for a pain that began to trouble him and Wrapped warmly about with furs, for a great coldness was creeping over all things, and so they left him, and he sat for a long time, watching the afterglow give place to the darkness of night. It seemed to those who had to watch over him unobtrusively, lest he should be in want of any attention, that he mused very deeply, the white and purple peaks against the golden sky sank down into cold blue remoteness glowed out again and faded again and the burning cressets of the indian stars that even the moonrise cannot altogether quench began their vigil the moon rose behind the towering screen of dark precipices to the east and long before it emerged above these its slanting beams had filled the deep gorges below with luminous mist and turned the towers and pinnacles of Leoporgul to a magic-dream castle of radiance and wonder came a great uprush of ghostly light above the black rim of rocks And then, like a bubble that is blown and detaches itself, the moon floated off clear into the unfathomable dark sky. And then Karenin stood up, he walked a few paces along the terrace, and remained for a time gazing up at that great silver disc, that silvery shield that must needs be man's first conquest in outer space presently he turned about and stood with his hands folded behind him looking at the northward stars at length he went to his own cell he lay down there and slept peacefully till the morning and early in the morning they came to him and the anaesthetic was given him and the operation performed it was altogether successful but karenin was weak and he had to lie very still And about seven days later a blood clot detached itself from the healing scar and traveled to his heart, and he died in an instant in the night. End of chapter 5, sections 5 through 10 And End of the World Set Free by H. G. Wells